have you turn to the prophet Nahum. As you're uh, turning there, I'll just remind you that we're making our way through the minor prophets. And if you're not sure where Nahum is, that's okay. It's on page 782 in the authorized version. You have to make your way through the early minor prophets. Hosea, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Nahum. You'll get there just just flip through those uh, first minor prophets and you'll find Nahum. Three chapters, another short book. Nahum is the other Nineveh prophet. We looked at the first of the Nineveh prophets uh, last week, Jonah. The prophet who preached repentance, who was called by God to go to Nineveh as an expression of God's mercy and compassion and kindness Well, Nahum is the other Nineveh prophet. And I'd like for you to read with me chapter 1 of this prophecy. Nahum 1, beginning at verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image 
I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray together. Lord, if ever we needed your help, it's when we come to passages like this, that if we are quiet and we pause for just a moment, are frankly terrifying to us. So please, Lord, give us your spirit, give us understanding, give us patience, be patient with us. But as we come to your word, give us the help that we need to receive it as truth and to live in light of it to be changed by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, we're making our way through the minor prophets, and I've already mentioned the fact that we heard from Jonah last week, and, and Jonah's message clearly is of a very different sort from the message of Nahum. I mean, Jonah comes to the same city, the city of Nineveh, And he preaches the prospect of judgment, but calls the people to repentance. And they repent and they experience the compassion of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord. And now here is Nahum coming to the same city. And my goodness, just line upon line and word upon word and verse upon verse, expressing and enlarging upon expanding upon this frightening prospect of the wrath of God directed at the same city. When was the last time you read Nahum? (laughs) You may never read it again, right? But look, there are are four things, and, you know, good luck. I've got to do this fairly quickly, but I want to ask you to, to consider these four things that come out of this this passage, and the first of them is a history lesson, just a short history lesson. The second of them is a little bit of theology. So a bit of history, a bit of theology. And then third, the scent, the aroma, the scent of the grace of God. And then finally, the sound of rejoicing. And these things all hang together. They all hang together, a bit of history, a bit of theology, the scent of grace and the sound of rejoicing. At first, just a bit of a history lesson here. And I do this because I want for us to remember, as I suggested last week, that this book that we're looking at, Nahum this week, Jonah last week, uh, isn't a fable. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's It's not a story from which to extract moralistic lessons or insights for living, not that I think there's anything wrong with that program, but the Bible is more than that. And the thing I want to try to remind us of is is that in the Bible, you've got a history that unfolds, and that history is not different from the history you're living right now, moment by moment. And what's interesting is that as you look at the history of the Bible, you actually see characters, places, events, that find their way, if you will, into secular history. So 
you get even from a study of history a confirmation of the fact that we're not dealing with ideas out of somebody's head. We're not dealing with mythology. We're not dealing with fable. We're dealing with the real stuff of human history. Now, some of you may, from years gone by, uh, either have read the the H.G. Wells story, The Time Machine, or or maybe you saw the movie. I, the movie was I saw it as a kid. It terrified me, scared me to death. There were these creatures that lived underground, and they came out at night, and they imprisoned Earth's population. You remember that? It was scary. And I, you know, as long as it was daytime, it was okay. But when it started to get dark, it was scary. And I'd find myself with a pillow, you know, putting a pillow over my head because I didn't want to have to deal with these creatures that came out at night. You know, well, the idea was the main character gets on this machine and he rides this machine backwards and forwards. It's a time machine and it goes ahead in time and it goes backwards in time. Look, if you were to get on H.G. Wells' time machine and to ride backwards, you'd bump into Nahum. You'd bump into him. He's a real guy living in a real place in real time, just as Jonah was. And Nineveh was a real place, the place that he prophesied about and the place that Jonah went to. Again, just a, just a you know, quick little bit of history here. Nineveh is actually mentioned for the first time in Genesis 10, verse 11. Nineveh is one of the cities that Nimrod built. Remember Nimrod, the great warrior, the first, frankly, this is the implication of the thing. If you sort of read the text, the first militaristic conqueror, the first king with designs on other people's kingdoms, who expands his kingdom and builds these cities of which Nineveh was one and of which Babylon was another, two great cities. One commentator has referred to Babylon as the first truly cosmopolitan city, the first real city of man, and describes Babylon as being a metaphor of or a symbol of man's warfare against God. Remember Babel, the place where they tried to raise the city up to the heavens so that they could dethrone God and and enthrone themselves. Babel gives us Babylon, a sort of a symbol, a metaphor of man's warfare against God, man's opposition to God. But then Nineveh, Nineveh, this same commentator, refers to or describes as a metaphor or a symbol of man's violence against man, man's warfare against man. Babylon, man's warfare against God. Nineveh, man's warfare against man. And we looked last week at what characterized the military expansion of Nineveh and the brutality of the place and the cruelty of the place. And Nineveh becomes a kind of a metaphor, not only for military expansion and conquest, but violence and cruelty and exploitation. It's kind of tough to talk about this stuff in mixed company, particularly when there are younger children around. But you remember what we said last week, that it was characteristic of the expansionist tactics of Nineveh, of Assyria, 
to decapitate those whom they had conquered and to pile up skulls and bodies. It was characteristic of their form of the subjugation of people to flay people, to skin them alive. Violent, brutal. It's no wonder Jonah didn't want to go preach to Nineveh. So Nineveh then becomes this metaphor of man's violence against man. And the city of Nineveh, this great city that's described in Jonah's prophecy, and that again is in view in Nahum's prophecy. Uh, We continue to read about, beginning around 2000 B.C., approximately contemporaneous with Abraham. You know, you've got the sort of the high water marks of Israelite history, Abraham at about 2000, the exodus from Egypt. These are rough dates at about 1500, the kingdom of David at about 1000, and then Solomon at about 950, and the division of the kingdom into the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes that continue down to 722 B.C. for the northern kingdom, In 598 B.C. for the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that's the rough chronology, the high water marks of of Israelite history. Well, you've got high water marks of secular history, too. And and about 2000 B.C. is Hammurabi and the Code of Hammurabi, and and Nineveh is mentioned there. And then you've got this, this, if you go to the museum, the British Museum in London, you can see this thing. You can see this black obelisk that has this this motif on it, this this picture of an Israelite king, Jehu, the son of Omri, bowing before an Assyrian king, paying homage to him, offering him tribute. Well, that occurs in the last half of the 9th century B.C., the 800s. And not long after that is, is when Amos and Hosea begin their ministries in the north. You see what I'm saying? There's this connection between secular history and biblical history, and that secular history confirms in so many ways the fact that we're not reading stuff that somebody made up to give us moralistic lessons. This is the stuff of real history, and if you get on H.G. Wells' time machine and you go back far enough, you bump into it. Now, why is that so important? Why does that matter? Like, who cares, right? Well, here's why it matters. Here's why it matters that Nineveh is a real place in real time and that Nahum is a real person living at a real place in real time and these kings of Judah and Israel are real people and these kings of Assyria are real people. It's because it's our history too. And the question is, In whose hands is that history? In whose hands is that history? In whose hands is your history? If you read through the first chapter of Nahum, ten times in this first chapter, the personal name of God, the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, the God who is the creator of the ends of the earth. Ten times his personal name is used. It's translated in your Bibles, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
That is Yahweh. That is the personal name of God, his covenant name, the name by which he identifies himself as one who makes promises, who keeps promises, who loves his people, who preserves his people, who keeps his people. And 21 times in the first chapter, so 10 times the personal name of God, 21 times first and third person personal pronouns in the first chapter. He, his, I, my. Personal pronouns, all referring to the God of the covenant, the God who calls a people and loves a people and protects and defends a people. 31 times in 14 verses, the God of heaven and earth is referred to. And the clear implication is he has the whole world in his hands. He has the whole world in his hands. He has this history in his hands. He knows Nineveh. He knows Ninevites. He knows Israel. He knows Israelites. He's not an impersonal force. But he is the real, personal God of history. Infinite, unchanging, eternal. Ruling, guiding, governing things. I heard, I heard a great song this last week. I don't know if it's a great song, but I sure enjoyed it. I've discovered Pandora. I don't know if you know about Pandora. It's a musical service. It's a phenomenal thing. It's free. If you've got a computer, you can access it. It's an incredible musical experience. And I heard a song this last, you know, Pandora's box is a bad thing. Well, this is, I think, is a good thing. I mean, I, you know, I put Mozart in my deal, so I've got Mozart radio. I put Beethoven in my thing. I got Beethoven radio. I put Mary Chapin Carpenter in my thing. And now I got Mary Chapin Carpenter radio. I got Susie Boggess. I got Alison Krauss. I got anybody you want. And I heard this great Mary Chapin Carpenter song, and it stands in such stark contrast to the thing we're talking about here. It's a song called The Long Way Home, and it describes people. First a man. This is the, this is the line. This is the, the verse. You could be this man. He's got it all worked out. To the nth degree, no fears, no doubts. He'll retire at 30 to his big old house next to the putting green. Now he's got a picture in his head of the perfect wife, their perfect children, their perfect life. Nothing wrong with that, coming home each night to his cul-de-sac of dreams. Funny now how it all went by so fast. One day he's looking over his shoulder at the past when everybody had to go, had to be, had to get somewhere. How did he forget about what got him there in his cul-de-sac of dreams? Then the next verse. Now, you could be this woman. She's the CEO. She's got her power suits and her IPOs. She punched a hole in the ceiling years ago, and she hasn't pulled back since. Now, there's a gardener for the flowers, a cook for the meals, a maid for the laundry, an accountant for the bills, a walker for the dog, and a trainer when she feels the need to lose an inch. Funny now how it all went by so fast. And one day she's looking over her shoulder at the past when everybody had to go, had to be, had to get somewhere, and somehow she forgot about what got her there. And I'm listening to this verse and I'm saying, Dear Jesus, through a secular songwriter, get some glory for yourself. 
And what's the answer to the question about how we got there? Here's the refrain. Accidents and inspiration lead you to your destination. Accidents and inspiration lead you to your destination. Here's the third verse. You could be the one who takes the long way home. Roll down your window, turn off your phone. See your life as a gift from the great unknown. And your task is to receive. How come I focus on this? Why do I make such a big deal of Nineveh and of Nahum being real people living in real places in real times? Because they are people in the hands of Almighty God and they are not at the mercy of accidents and inspiration. Their lives are not a function of the activity of a great unknown. The thing that we affirm in the Bible is that there is an infinite personal God who is really there, who continues to guide and direct and order all of human history for his glory and for the good of his people. In whose hands do you want your life to be? In the hands of this infinite personal God who is really there? Or in the hands of accidents and inspiration. The reason for the history lesson is simply to remind us again that this history is in God's hands. And that then leads us to this second thing, and that is a bit of theology. It isn't just that God is at home, and this is tough, folks. This is tough. This is an... an extraordinarily and excruciatingly challenging thing to come to terms with. It isn't just that God is at home in the universe. It isn't just that all of human history is in his hands. It isn't just that Nahum really lived and Nineveh really lived and you could bump into him if you went backwards. But it is also that the God who has history in his hands is a particular kind of God. And this passage makes that abundantly clear. We saw in Jonah's prophecy that God is a God of extraordinary compassion. This this passage tells us the same thing. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. A reference back to Exodus and to Deuteronomy. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. And, you know how we talk about being radically bipolar in this church? You know, we talk about a compassion and a mercy and a kindness that is off the charts in that direction. But we talk as well, or I should say, and we talk as well, about a righteousness and a holiness and a concern for what is just and good that is off the charts in that direction. And that's what you see in Nahum. You see reference. That's you gotta, you know, you gotta kind of have Jonah and and Nahum is bookends on the shelf of your library. And you don't pit these things against each other. And you, you don't try to, in any way, dumb down or diminish one at the expense of other. You affirm them both. And what you see in this passage is this. 
It isn't just that God is at home in the universe that he has made, but he cares. Listen to this. He cares about what is right. He cares about what is wrong. He is good, supremely so, and he hates. And it's not too strong a word to use. He hates injustice. He hates unrighteousness. He hates what oppresses. He hates what exploits. I've already made reference to what the Assyrian kings were like and what they would do to their enemies. What kind of universe do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a universe in which an infinite personal God who is really there has all of human history in his hands, mine included. Do I want to live in that kind of universe? And do I want to live in the kind of universe where somebody really is at home and somebody really cares about what is right and wrong? We made this point, tried to make this point when we were making our way through Amos. As Amos is thundering, as actually God is thundering through Amos as the roaring lion. He's offering these prophecies against all of these nations, Tyre and Damascus and Edom and Moab and even Judah, and and he saves his most stinging rebukes for Israel. And why does he do it? Because injustice and oppression and exploitation were being found in Israel. And God, who is supremely good, hates injustice. And let me tell you, even though it's hard to hear, and it's hard to hear about wrath and and vengeance, and, and God taking vengeance on his adversaries and storing up wrath, this is verse 2, storing up wrath for his enemies, even though it's hard to hear about it, I want to tell you something. Deep in your hearts, in your heart of hearts, you want to live in a universe where that God is at home. Because you want justice. And you want righteousness. And you want somebody to be at home who not only cares about righteousness and unrighteousness, but who has the power to do something about it. That's the point we tried to make many weeks ago in making our way through Amos. But I want to make it again. What does it mean, verse 1, what does it mean that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. It's really hard for us to get our brains around that. And the reason it's hard for us to get our brains around that is because we don't see good examples of jealousy. We don't see displays of righteous indignation. At least if you come to my house, you don't. When you see jealousy, you see self-referenced jealousy. When you see displays of indignation, you see self-referenced displays of indignation. And by that, I simply mean, and you know that this is true. I mean, if you get quiet alone with yourself, you know, and you kind of look into your own heart, you know that you're jealous about stuff. And the reason you're jealous about stuff is because it serves your best interests to be jealous about stuff. Right? And displays of of anger and and wrath and all of the rest, they're very rarely, very rarely 
truly, selflessly, righteously motivated, right? We know who we are. And it's so hard for us to get this, this, our brains around these ideas of jealousy and of the wrath of God. But think about it in this way. Think about jealousy and wrath in this way. Suppose you're a parent. And you've read stories about this in our local paper recently. A kid, a fourth grader, a third grader, whatever he was, who seemed to be the you know, the brunt, bear the brunt of jokes. He was picked on at school. His teacher even, I don't know the whole story, but this paper, you know, they said the teacher brought this poor little kid up in front of the class and made an object lesson of him. You know, this, you're not supposed to behave this way. Don't behave the way this kid behaves. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what it's all about. But let me tell you something. If you're a parent and your kid gets dragged before the whole class and the teacher makes you, makes your child an object lesson before the rest of the class, there's, there's switches that start to go off inside you, aren't there? You know, when your kid, your child, the one whom you love, becomes the object of somebody else's fun-making and even physical abuse, what are you jealous for? You're jealous to protect the well-being of your child. And if somebody doesn't do something about it, what happens next? You get angry. Now you cast it in those terms and you begin to understand what rightly motivated jealousy begins to look like and what rightly motivated anger begins to look like. When there is a true injustice, a person in his or her right mind is concerned, is jealous. To see the one who is the victim of that injustice be protected. And when it doesn't happen, you get angry. The thing we're saying here is not only is it the case that God is at home in the universe that he has made, but he cares. He cares about what is right. He cares about what is wrong. He knows what is right. He knows what is wrong. And he is able to do something about it. And that's a good thing. It's tough to read this. But it's a good thing to know that there is a God at home in the universe who has all of history in his hands. And it's good to know that that God who is at home in the universe cares about what is right, cares about what is wrong, and has power to do something about it. Those are good things. Why is the character Oscar Schindler so compelling? Remember Schindler's List? You've seen it. Why is he so compelling? Why is the story so compelling? Because here is a man who cared, and here is a man who had power to do something about an injustice. And you love the story because at the end of the story, Oscar Schindler is heartbroken because he didn't do more. Didn't do more. That's what we're reading about in chapter 1. We're reading about a God who is jealous about righteousness, jealous about what is good, jealous about what is right, and he has power to do something about it. Again, the universe, the universe isn't just out there, exposed, the victim of accidents, 
and inspiration. And you, this is what the Bible is saying to us, you are not out there exposed to accidents and inspiration. There is a God who is at home. He cares about what is right, and he has power to do something about it. That's what this book is telling us. And this book is telling us that God looks at the Ninevehs of this world and the Ashurbanipals of this world and the Pol Pots of this world and the Idi Amins of this world and radical extreme terrorists of this world. This book is telling us that God sees that stuff, he cares about that stuff, he knows that it's there, and he will vindicate righteousness and justice. He'll do it. And he will make hurricanes Ike and Andrew and Katrina look like child's play when he does. It will make Galveston look like a place of safety and security when God unleashes the full force of his fury against every form of unrighteousness at the day of judgment. You will wish that you could be in Galveston on that day. And that's what makes this third thing so remarkable. Verse 7. Buried right here in this powerful expression that God is there, that he cares about what is right, he cares about what is wrong, and he has the ability to do something about it. Right there, buried right there in that passage, is this summons. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, and he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. What's the day of trouble that's being referred to here? It's this day we're talking about. It's this day when the fullness, the full measure, the unremitting and and entire wrath of God is released against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. What's the day of trouble? That's the day of trouble. That's a big day of trouble. And what God is saying through Nahum is that there is a place of refuge in that day, a stronghold that will withstand will withstand the unleashing of God's righteous jealousy and anger against all of the unrighteousness that he encounters. And that's good for you, and it's good for me, right? Right? I've been thinking about this. You know, it's wonderful what happens in the course of a week when, when you get to do what I do. I've been thinking all week about this word refuge in verse 7. He knows those who take refuge in him. I've been thinking about the cities of refuge in the nation Israel. You can read about the cities of refuge. You can read about them in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19 and Joshua 20. Go read about the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge, three of them on the east side of the Jordan and three of them on the west side of the Jordan. Nobody was any more than 30 miles away from a city of refuge. And you know what the cities of refuge were there for? 
They were places of safety for those who had committed manslaughter. Now, people who committed premeditated murder, that was, that was met with capital punishment. So, you know, you've got to understand that there's stuff going on in Israel at the civil, civic level. These laws are established so that righteousness might exist in the land. But you've got to understand that there are historical, redemptive, theological things that are going on as well. And cities of refuge exist in the land for those who have killed somebody. They exist in the land for those who have killed somebody. And you go to the city of refuge, and if you're in the city of refuge, you're protected from the avenger of blood. You know how the society worked back then? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth for tooth. You hurt me, I hurt you back. And the cities of refuge were there for those who had done something horrible and needed a place of protection and safety until their cases were tried. And you know what was interesting? They stayed there. Get this. This is amazing. They stayed. They had to stay in the city of refuge. If you committed manslaughter, you had to stay in the city of refuge until the high priest died. And then you were free to go back to your town. I've committed more manslaughter in my life by thoughts, by words, and even sometimes by deeds defrauding people of their life than I can even begin to count. And when this day that is in view arrives, if I am not in the city of refuge, if I am not in the place of safety, when that wrath is released in all of its unmitigated and overwhelming force and power, I will be destroyed. You see what this is? It's a scent of grace. It's just a sniff. It's an aroma in the midst of all of this strong language about what God is like. Here is this same God saying, hey, there is a place of safety. There is a city of refuge. There is a strong tower. There is an eye in the midst of the hurricane which is tranquil and at rest and peaceful. And if you are in that eye, if you are secure in that place, the storm cannot touch you. And who's the place of rest and safety? Who's the city of refuge? It's the squirrel, isn't it? It is Jesus, who is himself the judge of the nations, who himself, as we've already confessed this morning in our affirmation of faith, will return, and when he returns, he will enter into judgment with all of his enemies. But those who have entrusted themselves to him, those who have come to the city of refuge and have taken up residence in the city of refuge, those who find themselves in the eye of the hurricane in that place of tranquility and safety, will be safe from that storm. You know where you are? 
Do you know where you are? Do you know that you are safe in the eye of the storm? If you do, then verse 15 makes a whole lot of sense. There is the sound of rejoicing in verse 15. Verse 12, God says to his people, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down, they will pass away. And though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. God's speaking to his people. And as he comes to the end of his speech, as he gets done talking to his people, he says, look up, look up into the mountains and behold the feet of him who brings good news, the one who proclaims peace. Celebrate your feasts. Engage in your celebrations. Fulfill all of your vows for never again will the worthless pass through you for he is utterly cut off and destroyed. See, for those who know that they're secure, those who know that there is a God at home in the universe, that he cares about what is right and he cares about what is wrong and he has power to deal with what is wrong, for those who know that and who have taken refuge in the city of refuge, in the eye of the storm, there is every, no matter what this life throws at you, there is reason to rejoice because the worthless can never harm you or touch you again. Is this life full of junk? Yeah, it is. Full of storms, full of wreckage, full of heartache. Heard another great song, Martina McBride, same deal. Pandora, another great, great song. One day I'm going to hang my heartaches out to dry and I'm going to be safe in the arms of love. No matter the heartaches that life throws at you, if you are in the refuge, if you are in the eye of the storm, if you are in Jesus Christ, there is a reason for rejoicing. And I love the way Mother Teresa talks about it, talked about it. She would say, When we taste the full glories, the new heaven and the new earth, it will make the troubles of this life seem like a night in a bad hotel. So God is at home and God cares and he's got power to deal with what rightly makes him so angry. Just be sure, just be sure before you leave today that you know you're in the place of refuge and safety. And if you don't know, Find somebody who can explain it to you. Come and talk to me. But but know for sure that there is a place of safety and security and it is the source of rejoicing for those who dwell there. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bless you, we praise you, we thank you that you are that refuge and that source of safety for all who trust in you. And I thank you, O God, Though it makes me tremble to say it for myself and for all of us, I thank you, O God, that you are a God who cares about what is right and has power to do something about what is wrong. Please, O God, for every one of us in this room, draw us into this place of safety that we might be in that stronghold on that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together. We'll sing just the first and last verses of number 159. O Savior, precious Savior, number 159.